All right, so we've been in this series called Look Up, uh, and last week Ryan spoke about this idea of arrows and arrows of worship, and how when it comes to our lives, we're consistently and constantly shooting at targets, only most of the time we're, we're hitting the wrong mark, we're aiming at the wrong target altogether, and that our worship, when we shoot out, whether it's worshiping friends or relationships or our jobs, it, it pales in comparison, and it's a loss to us in compared to uh, pointing our worship towards God. And so as we look up, we realize then that our worship was misguided. And the look up that I want to talk about tonight is this, this look up that happens when you kind of take a step back from getting tunnel vision of your life and, and look at the fact that God has been chasing after you every single day. Uh, and so tonight we're talking about a relentless pursuit of God's love. And um, as you can tell from your notes that are in your hands, it's, it's blank. So I want to encourage y'all, whatever point speaks out to y'all, I don't have set points, and so whatever grabs your attention, just start writing. Um, but as I thought about kind of how I could relate this, um, interestingly enough, I came across a, uh, a well of information from my own experience on, uh, on pursuits. Um, and so last time I spoke, I got to embarrass myself by sharing ways that I had been an idiot. Uh, and so tonight I'm going to embarrass myself by sharing in ways in which I was a uh, hopeless romantic. Um, so I am, uh, a romantic. I've been called that, I agree. Um, I have a, uh, weird thing of just, like, going all out for whether it's a girl I'm dating or a girl that I'm interested in and, and the attempt of winning over their hearts. And so, at first I'd kept the names in here, but I'm just going to leave it blank because that ended up being too embarrassing as I was practicing. So I'm just going to give y'all examples of the extents to which I've gone for girls that I was enamored with. So for example, uh, this one is probably you can solve through inductive reasoning because it was yesterday, uh, and I'm currently dating somebody, um, so it's that person. Um, I went to the Florida football game, um, and uh, I wanted to send a postcard to the girl that I am dating currently. Um, And so the downside is where we parked was a mile and a half from where uh, the place that sold postcards was, Walgreens or whatever. Um, and then on top of that, that was two miles from where my friends were. And so I wanted to see my friends. It was my first time being back in Gainesville for a while, but I knew I wanted to accomplish the first task. And so, uh, I went on a little jog in the middle of the hot summer day in full gator year, uh, all the way to CVS, bought the postcard, sale, uh, mailed it out, uh, all in the name of, like I said, winning over somebody's heart. Uh, one time in college, this one is probably the worst. Uh, One time in college, before I even went on a date with this girl, I, because here's the thing, on the side note, I just get so welled up in my head of like where we're at on a relationship level, me and that person, that like my gesture is probably like the most intimidating thing they've ever experienced because for them it's like, do you even like me? Like I didn't even, we've never talked before. Um, (laughs) And so one time for this, (laughs) one time for this girl, uh, I worked at a sorority house, and she was in the sorority, and I had access to the sorority house because I worked there, and so over Christmas break, I created for this girl uh, custom paper lantern string lights from Tangled, <laughs> and hung them in her dorm, and got her like a the little Marcel chameleon thing, and, and went all out for that, um, all before I even had taken her on a date, and we went on a date, and nothing came of it, but that was that. Um, I used to go on runs out of my direction of a normal run just to pass somebody. I kept a mochi 
punched gift card for like a free mochi in my wallet for two years because I thought well, there was going to be one time where I get a chance to go to mochi and use this card to buy her a free mochi. And somehow the free mochi was going to be more momentous than if I just bought mochi for us. I, uh, I've driven through the night long distances in a really crappy truck. Um, I didn't have airbags. It didn't have power steering. It was, uh, it was a dangerous mission. Uh, and then probably the most infamous of my relationships was my high school relationship with a girl I dated for a really long time. Uh, and, and on a side note, I think this is probably the closest I ever came to loving somebody the way that God loves us because it didn't hinge anything on her response to that love. And it didn't, it didn't matter if she messed up or hurt my feelings. I just kept loving her. And so I got a job to pay for our relationship. I bought her flowers every day. I wrote letters all the time. Um, and like I said, looking back at it now, it's like I cannot I was ever that weak. And yet I look at myself today and I'm still that weak. Um, so yeah, so I think it's funny. I mean, I think it's, I think it's great to laugh at kind of the ways that I've pursued relationships over the years. Um, but like I said, I think the coolest thing that I began to realize is that in a lot of ways, God pursues us and, and does so in, in, in really huge gestures. And I think for myself, I delight in the fact, I look at my relationships in times when it didn't work out, but I look at kind of the, the gestures that I went out for. Like, man, I went all out for this. I, I, I took this step. I took that step and really like kind of put it all on the line. And so the thing that I want to kind of hopefully gather from tonight is for y'all to realize how completely on the line God has been for all of us all the time. Um, so if you want to, you can open up in your Bibles to Luke 15. That's on page 729 on the Bibles that we provide. Or it's on Luke 15 if you brought your own Bible. So Luke 15 contains three parables, three stories. And each story kind of spells out a different aspect in a different way that, that God loves us. It, it references God's love for us. And so I'm going to read them, uh, and I want you to follow along. We're going to start in Luke 15, verse 1. And it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around hearing him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. The first one is called the parable of the lost sheep. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that there, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So the interesting things that I want to kind of pull out of this, this parable that I think is just so um, powerful in our consideration and realization of how much God loves us uh, is first of all is this, is that it says that you have this shepherd who leaves 99 sheep behind to find one lost one. And so for us, we can trust in the fact that if we ever stray, God is searching for us. And even the crazier thing about that is, is that unlike the shepherd, God doesn't have to leave the 99. He doesn't have to leave the multitude to go find the few. He's able to be everywhere, always, all the time. 
And so he doesn't have to choose one or the other. He chooses all at the same time. Another thing that I really like from this parable is at the end of verse 4, it says, does he not leave the 99 and 1 in the open country and go after lost sheep until he finds it? Until he finds it. There's not a point that the shepherd is going to give up. And likewise, there's not a point that God's going to give up on you. And you can think about it that you're going to grow tired, you're going to grow weary if you're the shepherd that's, is, okay, I'm in the middle of nowhere looking for one sheep. How am I going to find this one sheep? Well, I'm going to climb up to the top of that hill and I'm going to look around. Do I see him? Dang it, I don't see him yet. Okay, well, another mile away, there's another hill. So let's walk to that one and look. And the reassuring thing is that for God, it's the same way. He's never, ever going to give up until we're found. The final thing that I really love about this chapter, or about, about that parable, uh, is after he finds them, it says that he puts them back up on his shoulders and carries them home. And what I want to pull from that is the realization that when God finds us, or when we're found in Christ, it's not on our own doing, and it's not on our own strength. It's because he came and got us, and not only does he come and get us, but then he carries us. It doesn't have to be a, a decision, well, God, I, I need you in my life. I need you to rescue me. And then he pulls you out of the water and you go, okay, I think I can swim now. I'm pretty good. Like I was drowning for a while, but now I can swim because you pulled me out for that 30 seconds. But the realization is that God is always rescuing us and always carrying us. So that's the first one. So he goes on to say, this is the parable of the lost coin starting in verse eight. It says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I will tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this seems very similar to the, to the first parable, but I think there's some different things that I think is also really cool about God's love that's illustrated in this parable. And the first of which is this, is that God is not satisfied with the majority. You have this woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one, and you would think, as I would probably think, well, I still got nine. I still got the majority. I still have 90% of what I had before. But we see what's different with God is he says, no, 90% isn't close to enough. And I will overturn everything to get that last 10%. I'll overturn anything and all things to get all things back in me. And the other cool thing is it was said in the previous one, and it is said again, and I think it's just something that is so exciting to look at, is the fact that in both circumstances, the person rejoices in being found. The person celebrates the circumstance and gathers others around them to celebrate. And the same thing is true of you. It says in the Bible that angels rejoice when somebody comes to repentance, that God is, is, is smiling from ear to ear. People are just singing your name up in heaven like, hallelujah, heck yeah. Tristan just made it back. Like, Kathy just made it back. And it's such an awesome thing to look at and understand that he not only is chasing after us forever, but he's the most celebrative when he finds us and just the most excited when he finds us. Now, the final parable um, is one that I'm going to leave at the end. And it's the parable of the lost son. And if you've been at church for a while, you've probably heard it preached. And if you haven't, um, that's okay. It's, it's one that I would encourage you um, to, to look in on your own. So as I looked at my life, and as I said earlier, I had these big gestures. 
in relationships and girls that I was interested in. I looked at this and I look at these big gestures of leaving the 99 and leaving the 9 to find the 1 each time. And I think to myself, okay, what is it though? What is that capstone thing? What was the biggest gesture that happened? And in our religion, in Christianity, I think there's this tendency that we always desire, okay, what is that next step? Where can I go from here? Okay, I got it. I got grace. I got the gospel. Okay, I get that. What's next? What can you give me? What can I, what can I begin to kind of step my faith up to the next level? And while I think that is a, a, a righteous pursuit to draw closer to God, I think a lot of times we do that at the cost of, of kind of moving past the most foundational most life-changing thing that's happened in our history. And so for me, and I would just go ahead and say it's for anyone, the biggest gesture that ever happened in our history was the cross. And on the cross, God, we believe, made a way that was otherwise impossible. We believe as Christians that God is perfect. He is without fault. And so for something that is perfect to cohabitate with something that is imperfect the only possible way for that to happen is that the imperfection has to be made right. That the, the inconsistency has to be made consistent. A lot of ways I illustrate this in the life group that I'm with and lead um, is like this. If I have this, this bottle of water, and this bottle of water represents God, it's clean, it's, it's, it's pure, it's without fault, and then obviously, I mean, we know there's like little micro minerals, but just for the sake of this illustration, there is crystal clear water in my, in my bottle right now. And if I put one drop of food coloring in this water, it would change to some degree. Now, it might change a little bit, but it would change. In the same way, if I dumped a whole bottle of food coloring, it would change. The issue is not at which the color changed or the degree to which it changed, if it changed a little or it changed a lot. The issue is that the, 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 the command of God is that perfection is the only way, that crystal clear water is the only way. And so with God, he, he, des- he de- designed a way that we could again be made crystal and clean and pure and holy. And the coolest thing about the cross to me is something I realized. We had this, um, if you were at big church this morning, Pastor Jerry talked about it. Um, last Thursday as a staff, we had a three-hour prayer experience. And it wasn't just we showed up at 11 and started praying. It didn't stop till 2. But we, we came together. We talked about what it is that we expected to hear from God, what we were going to plan to do, and how we were going to pray. And we prayed for about an hour and a half and then talked again for 30 minutes at the end. And the really crazy thing is just what begins to happen if you take an extended stay in God's presence and take an extended time in listening to what he has to try to tell you and, and what he's been trying to tell you if you would only but look up. And so for me, the thing that he was trying to tell me that I think is so huge um, is that the cross was his first plan. It was always his design. We didn't catch him off guard when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and the fall of man happened and, and sin entered the world as we b- believe it to happen in Christianity and now we live in a world of, of sinfulness and all that kind of stuff. It, it wasn't this situation where God said, oh goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. Okay, what can I do now? But what we believe is that God knew exactly how this was going to play out before it even started. And that's why before the creation of mankind, God says, let us make man in our image. The hour referring to him himself, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. And so we can realize that if he already had Jesus in mind before man existed, 
then he must have already had in mind that he was going to have to fix an issue in man. So I think, yeah, the coolest thing is that, that there was this infinite gap that was crossed. Another verse that I want to highlight that I think is another issue or another reason why this is the biggest gesture that's ever happened in history is also on your notes, Romans 5.8. And you can turn there. It's page 785 in the Bibles we provide. And for some of you, this will sound familiar. It says in verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the crazy thing that I can gather from that is the truth that God's pursuit of us, God's love for us, in no way hinges on our obedience, on our own righteousness, on our own ability to reach up and say, God, I'm, I'm finally close enough to you. I'm, I've climbed this hill of, of going to church. Um, I'm here now. Okay, I can reach you now. But we realize is that while we were sinning, while we were messed up, God died for us, that Christ died for us. And so we can understand that there was never a point where we were going to get it on our own. There was never a point where we were capable of fixing that issue. See, a God-sized problem like sin is only fixable by God. It's not fixable on our own. And the tough thing is that we live in a culture of, of professed self-fixing, of you can do you, you can get better on your own, you can go to counseling, you can do this. You've got you to overcome on your own. And I'm not by any means putting down counseling, but I'm just talking about this whole, this whole culture of you're your own savior, financially, in relationships, you can do it all on your own. But what we realize when we look at the Bible and understand God's love for us is that it's based out of a fact that we were never capable of doing it. We say things in the in our scriptures that say stuff like we're only capable of loving because God first loved us. And so that's true in Romans 5.8 and that's true throughout the Bible. So as I said, it's not, it's not hinged on our obedience. It's not hinged on our ability to, to live righteous, to, to be good enough. A story from the Bible, if, if maybe you've heard of it, is this story of when Jesus is on the cross, there's two people to the left and to the right of him. And one of them is rebuking Jesus, saying, if you're the king, you should call yourself down, while the other one is saying, please, on this day, you are who you are, please just remember me in paradise. And Jesus says, on this day, you know, you'll, you'll be with me in paradise. And it's a story of this thief that's on the cross. And you can imagine, he's lived an entire life in direct conflict with God. He was doing it on his own. He was doing it on his own strength. Never had any consideration for God. I don't know his whole backstory, but in the, in the pretense of this story, you can assume that he's lived a life pretty distant from God. And yet God's response to somebody finally saying, God, help me, is yes, I will right away. Yes, I will right away. God's promise is, is unbreakable. It's unbeatable. It is, it can't be amended. Because he's God and he's perfect, if he says something, he has to hold true to that because he's God. If he would give up on his own promise, then he would cease to be God because he can't give up on something that he said because he's God. And so he said that he's going to chase after us. He said that he's going to do it no matter what. And so I think that um, my final kind of example of, of 
scripturally how I see that, that this is displayed um, and that God pursues this relentlessly is in John. And you don't have to turn there. Um, but the book of John is a gospel. It's a story of Jesus' life. There's four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's a story of disciples telling about basically what happened in Jesus, what, what his miracles, the way he, he lived his ministry, his death, his, his crucifixion, and everything like that. So in John, there's, there's 21 chapters. And this is true of all other gospels as well, but this is just the example I'm going to use. But in John 19, Jesus is crucified. And if you've never read it, I would really challenge you to read it because it's like one of those chapters that every time I, I return to it, God breaks me down a little bit more. So in John 19, Jesus is crucified. In a very famous way, he says on the cross, as he takes his dying breath, he says, it is finished. So the miraculous thing to me is that, okay, if Jesus says it is finished, why is there still two more chapters in John? Why does he say it is finished and that's not actually true? Why, why is there still more? And what you see in the next two chapters is why I think and why I can hold without a shadow of a doubt that God will just chase after us until the day that we finally realize he's been chasing us and, and turn to him or the day that we die. Because in John 20 and John 21, he rises from the death, rises from the, from the grave, and what he does, he doesn't just ascend right into heaven right away, but he returns to his disciples, these guys that have already been kind of wavering because they saw their Savior die, their Messiah die, and they're already kind of going back to the fishing, they're already going back to their normal lives, and yet after saying it is finished, he goes back and encourages them again. And so the ultimate truth, and this is kind of the the line that we have to toe as Christians is that there's nothing that we can do to separate us from God's love. There's nothing, no, no, no place we can go to, no rock we can hide under, no sin that, that wipes us away from his vision. He doesn't ever write us off. There's no point at which we can do anything to be outside of his love and his pursuit of us. And I think the tendency with that sometimes can be is to take advantage of that is to take advantage of that love and take advantage of that grace and say, well, I'm just going to live my life how I want to because I know God's always going to love me. And so there's this, there's this thin line between grace and obedience. And I think one of the things that Lanny said that I was just pumped to hear is that, yeah, we can come to church and we can go to life group and we can live a very Christian-looking life. But I got to believe at the same time while God pursues us relentlessly, he delights in the times when we get it right. He delights in the times when we seek him and ask for his power and ask for his grace and ask for his strength to continue on in the relation that he's set out for us. And so as the band comes back up tonight, the response is going to look different for a lot of y'all. It's going to look different for a lot of y'all. I purposefully left that last parable off. The parable of the lost son. And so for some of y'all, the challenge and this response is to read that and to get another glimpse at what God's love looks like. I'll give you a, a summarized version. Essentially, you have this son who says to his father, I wish that you were dead. Give me my inheritance now so I can live how I want to. In the story, he lives how he wants to and he finds himself broke out of out of any position 
for, for redeemment. He's, he's completely and utterly wasted it all. And he has this thought. He goes, you know what? My, my father's servants at least have something to eat. Let me go back and I can, I can at least try to be a servant. I can, I can go back and I'll swallow my pride. I'll say, I'll, 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 I'll serve, father. But at the end of the story, you have this scene where a father who sees his son, who had originally had told him, I wish you were dead, dad. Give me my money now. He sees his son and runs to him. Throws a robe around him, throws a feast in his honor, completely celebrates his return. And so with that, I think the follow-up to that is that for a lot of y'all tonight, God's been pursuing you your whole life, and you've yet to realize it. You've yet to open your eyes and broaden your horizon and look up and just see him right there and know. I live my life through a variety of circumstances, through areas where I thought it couldn't be any worse, through times when I think, man, God, you have always been this good. But as I look back at my life now, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that in every single circumstance, he has been there. So I don't want to discredit things that y'all are going through. But what I want to shine light onto is the fact that God is pleading with you to let him help, to let him in there, to let him put you on his shoulders like the sheep and carry you out of it and carry you through it and carry you through that pain. For some of y'all, the response is to stop running. You've been a Christian for a while, but you've gotten to the point where you said, okay, I got you, God. I got your grace. I got the gospel. But I'm going to go ahead and do mine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to live this on my own. I'm going to do it on my own strength. It's going to be on me. And for some of y'all, y'all are exhausted. You just don't realize it. And God's calling you to stop running. Calling you to say, God, I need you again. I need you always. For some of you still, the response is just to thank God, worship and praise and say, hallelujah, Father, because I know so confidently you've been taking care of me my whole life. And you're at a place tonight in United where you're just saying, man, I am just in your graces. I'm in your, your, your joys, God, and you've just been carrying me so well. And that's something certainly to be celebrated. And then finally, I think one of the best responses that can happen from tonight is something that happened to me while I was in college. And it was this realization that if God has been pursuing me my whole life without restraint, without faltering, without ever growing weak, he's been pursuing me with great intensity, great demand, my whole life, then how can I ever begin to write somebody off? See, I grew up in high school and I was very popular. I had lots of friends and many of the friends didn't go to church, didn't know Jesus. And for a lot of my time when I went to, high, when I went to college, I got to, it was awesome. I graduated, went to Florida, and I went with 27 students from my high school alone, 27 kids that I knew. And yet as I began to kind of navigate through college, I, I realized to myself that I would write people off. I would look at the way that they would transition and I would say, well, obviously he's got what he thinks he wants and there's basically no saving him. But I want you to think and put yourself in the mind and put yourself in the story that we heard about for tonight from the sheep and ask yourself, how much farther would you want your shepherd to go to find you? One of the best ways I, I keep my strength up when I'm running 
for exercise is I say to myself, I'll pick a destination up in the, up in the distance and say, okay, I'll at least make it to there. I'll at least make it to the next lifeguard stand. I'll at least, I'll at least make it to the next traffic light. I'm not going to give up before that. I'm going to make it to there. And so I think God, for a lot of y'all, has challenged you to that very thing and saying to yourselves, okay, I'm not giving up on my friend. I'm not giving up on that person. I'll go another day. I'll go another week. I'll go this whole semester with them on my heart, with them on their mind, seeking to change and challenge and grow and, and infect them with the same love that you've experienced. So like I said at the very beginning of these kind of responses, with this prodigal son idea of returning home, in a room this size, I find it hard to believe that all you are confident in that, that all you know that God loves you, that you know that he's been pursuing you, that you know that his forgiveness covers every single thing, every mistake, every fault, it doesn't matter. So for some of y'all tonight, tonight is God pleading with you to accept that love, pleading with you to accept that forgiveness. It's not a, a weakness, it is a strength. It is a strength to understand and reason with yourself and say, I know that I can't do it on my own, so let me rest on somebody who can. Let me rest on somebody who has had my interest in mind my entire life before I was even created he had my interest in mind. And so for those of you who for tonight say to yourselves, that's something I want. That's something I want for me. I want God's forgiveness. I want to be welcomed into that place. I want to be carried home as a sheep and celebrated. I want to be found as a lost coin and celebrated. I want to have a robe thrown around me like the son that, was, that would return home to his father. Then I'm going to ask you to do a pretty significant thing and be confident enough in this by no means makes you a better Christian or, or further solidifies your salvation. But all I want to ask of you to do is to raise your hand. And what we're going to do is after, as, as we pray and pray for God to forgive us and, and to recognize the fact that he has been forgiving us, we have some guys around the room that are going to come and grab you and we're going to take you in the back, and this is not a, a weird thing. I know it sounds intimidating, but we want to delight and celebrate just like it says in Scripture. We want to hear your story. We want to know what God's been doing in your heart and in your life, and we want to celebrate that with you. We want to take your picture. We have a wall or a window filling right there filled with kids, filled with students that came to know without a shadow of a doubt that God has been chasing them their whole life and said to themselves, I'm done with running on my own. I want your forgiveness, and I want it now. And I don't think it's, it's a weird place to be to say, I want that board filled by the end of this year. I want it to be only pictures. I don't want any space left in the window, God, because what you're doing in the hearts of all these students here. So that starts tonight. And like I said, I'm going to pray. We can all bow our heads, close your eyes. And if you want that for yourself, while you're praying, I want you to keep your hand up.